William Nicholson began his screenwriting career with a made-for-TV movie called Martin Luther, Heretic, that released in 1983. His career continued to blossom as he went on to write some Hollywood classics, including Gladiator, Elizabeth, The Golden Age, and more recently, a remake of the classic tale Les Miserables. Meanwhile, in 2009, screenwriter Simon Bufoy won an Oscar for Best Writing Adapted Screenplay for his film Slumdog Millionaire. At the time, that was his second nomination after getting the nomination for The Full Monty at the 1998 Academy Awards. Simon would go on to get yet another Oscar nomination for the telling of an extraordinary tale that was based on a true story, 127 Hours in 2011. But that's not the story we're going to learn about today. Today, we're going to look at a story that was penned by both talented writers. The story tells the tale of what was at the time the single most disastrous day on Mount Everest in 1996. Two of the survivors of the tale went on to write books about their experiences. Despite this, both Simon and William decided not to use those books as the basis for their movie. Instead, they authored a new story that was inspired by the events. Of course, that didn't stop those five little words from showing up at the beginning of the movie. So if Everest wasn't based on the books written by the survivors, how much did Hollywood sacrifice in telling this tale? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Alright, before we begin this episode, you know what time it is. It's time to learn our two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, this is a little game and it's very simple. Basically, I'll share two facts that are true and one lie. Then at the end of the episode, we'll learn which is which. Okay, here they are. Number one, the expeditions in 1996 were the first to successfully scale the summit of Mount Everest. Number two, helicopters are used in rescues on Mount Everest, but they can't fly to the top. Number three, there have been over 200 people who have perished climbing Mount Everest. All of the answers are scattered throughout the episode, or you can stay on to the end of the show to find out what the actual answers are. While I have you here, don't forget you can get show transcripts, find all of the links from each episode, sign up for the official newsletter, help make sure that I can keep the lights on and support the show, and plenty more over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and now... Let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Everest. The movie begins with some text saying that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the first two people to have successfully summited Mount Everest. According to the movie, since then, hundreds have tried and one in four have perished trying. These statements are true. But it's important to point out some terminology here. The movie correctly states that they were the first to summit Mount Everest. That means they climbed to the top of the summit or the highest point on the mountain. They were not the first to climb Mount Everest though. The first expedition to climb Mount Everest that we know of was in 1921 when a British expedition aptly named the Mount Everest Committee was put together to tackle the mountain. There was a team of five people involved, and their primary purpose was for mapping the region. So technically, on September 23, 1921, this expedition's leader, 
Colonel Charles Howard Burry was the first human to set foot on the mountain when he and two others in his expedition managed to make it 23,030 feet high before being forced back. That's 7,020 meters. As a quick reminder, the peak of Mount Everest stands at 29,029 feet above sea level, or 8,848 meters. Oh, and the name? Mount Everest was named after a Welsh geographer named Sir George Everest. The name was given in 1865, despite Sir George's objections. The movie, though, mentions the first humans to summit Mount Everest. And that was, as the movie says, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. The pair put their names in the history books at 11.30 a.m. on May 29, 1953, when they became the first human beings to ever climb to the very top, also referred to as the summit. So if you're like me, you might be wondering, that's a really long time. From 1921 to 1953, did no one else try in those 31 years, eight months and six days between Colonel Howard Burry and the expedition of Sir Edmund and Tenzing? The answer is, there were plenty. In fact, the first attempt to scale the summit happened in 1922, the year after the first humans stepped foot on Everest. But they only made it 26,800 feet. Only. In case you can't tell, that's sarcasm. It's not that people didn't try. There were dozens of attempts between 1921 and 1953. It's just that scaling Mount Everest summit is that difficult. And that's where the next part comes in about the fatalities. As of this recording, 286 people have perished on Mount Everest. The first being a disaster that befell the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition on June 7, 1922. The latest being four people who perished on an expedition on May 22, 2016. Up until the 1996 expedition, the deadliest day on Mount Everest was in 1989 when six Polish climbers died in an avalanche. That changed on May 10th, 1996. Speaking of which, back in the movie, early on we get introduced to the characters in the film. We learn about Rob Hall, who's played by Jason Clark, and his company, which is called Adventure Consultants. Joining Rob's team for the trek are Beck Weathers, played by Josh Brolin, Doug Hansen, who's played by John Hawks, Yasuko Namba, who's played by Naoko Mori, and Andy Harris, who's played by Martin Henderson. These character names are all based on real people. Even the company, Adventure Consultants, is real. That's a real company, and you can hire them today to help with your extreme mountain climbing or other adventures. That's not an ad. After all, I'm a podcaster. I'm not a mountain climber. I've never used their services. But based on their website alone, it looks like if you've got some serious mountain climbing and that's your thing, then they've got you covered. In the movie, Rob Hall's team makes it to base camp and... There he runs into Scott Fisher, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. This happened on April 10th, a full month before they planned to scale the summit. So the timeline in the movie is certainly sped up. And in truth, ascending Mount Everest is not a race. So while the story mostly follows Rob's team, you'll notice Scott's team is already there when Rob Hall and his adventure consultant's team shows up. In truth, Scott's team was at the base camp for a full month before they tried to scale the summit. Scott's team used the time to hike up to higher elevations to start getting their lungs accustomed to the lack of oxygen up at high altitudes. The reason for this was simply because of the science behind high altitudes. As you get higher and higher, there's less air pressure, meaning that in the same volume of space on top of Mount Everest, 
there's a lot less oxygen than the same volume of space at sea level. At the peak of Mount Everest, over 5 miles above the Earth, or some 29,029 feet above sea level, there's only 33% of the oxygen that you'll find at sea level. So if you want to practice what it's like to breathe at the top of Mount Everest, try taking only one out of three breaths. Actually, no, don't try that. With less oxygen, you're going to be prone to headaches, dizziness, vomiting, nausea, fatigue, and a lot more issues that make it sound like the symptoms of a medicinal commercial on TV. Collectively, all of those symptoms are what's commonly referred to as altitude sickness or mountain sickness. As you can imagine, without as much oxygen, not only is it really hard to breathe, but on top of that, you're trying to climb the tallest mountain in the world. So that's why Scott Fisher's team was taking some time to get used to the change in oxygen levels. But they didn't just climb up and come back down. Over the course of their month at base camp, Scott's team collected almost two tons of garbage that had been left there by others. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the movie, the climb begins when the team from Adventure Consultants and the other expeditions make it from base camp, which is at 17,700 feet, to camp number one at 19,900 feet, just past the Kumbu Icefall. While crossing the Kumbu Icefall, in the movie, Josh Brolin's version of Beck Weathers nearly falls while crossing a crevice on ladders. In the real timeline, it only took the team four hours to reach the end of the Kumbu Icefall. That happened on April 12th, and in the early morning hours of April 13th, they arrived at Camp 1. 
The moment where Beck Weathers nearly falls was dramatized for the film and likely came from John Krakauer's book when he mentioned that both Beck and Yasuko Namba had difficulty crossing the ladder. According to the movie, John Krakauer, who's played by Michael Kelly, is a writer for Outside Magazine, and he's there to write a book about climbing Everest. That is true, and John's book, Coming Out of the Experience, is called Into Thin Air, A Personal Account of the Mount Everest Disaster. That book was used as the basis for the made-for-TV movie released in 1997. But as we learned in the intro, neither that book nor Beck Weathers' book which is called Left for Dead, My Journey Home from Everest, were the basis for the movie Everest. One of the primary reasons for this was because even though everyone was experiencing the trek at the same time, everyone's experiences were different. And this brings up a good point about the accuracy of both this experience of Beck Weathers nearly falling off the ladders and really most of the movie. It's not really following any of the experiences given by the survivors. Instead, the filmmakers decided to use the real characters and their experiences to create a new story that centered around them. In an interview with the film's director, Balthazar Kormaker, he explained that they very specifically didn't want it to be about any one person's perspective. Because everyone has their own perspective about what happened, the director wanted to take all of those perspectives into account but create a new story out of them. For example, we already heard about the books written by both John Krakauer and Beck Weathers. One of those books in particular contradicts what one of the other people's experiences were. That would be John Krakauer's book and the recollection of Sandy Pittman. At the time of the disaster, Sandy was the wife of MTV's creator, Bob Pittman. But that marriage was on its last legs. After the events, Sandy revealed that Bob had filed for divorce a few months before the expedition. So if you find her now, she's Sandy Hill. In the movie, she's portrayed by Vanessa Kirby. Now, in John's book and articles that he released afterward, John made the claim that Sandy was carried up the mountain. He portrayed her as the villain of the story and someone who basically paid her way to the top. However, according to Sandy, there was no villain in the story. There was no one to blame. It was just an accident that happened. And there's something to be said for Sandy's perspective. After all, when Sandy made it to the summit of Mount Everest on the 1996 expedition, she became only the second American woman to ascend what's referred to as the Seven Summits. That's the highest mountains on each of the seven continents of the world. So she's an experienced climber, to say the least. The point here is that the perspectives of those who were there don't always agree. But all we have are the stories of those who experienced it. So for the movie, the screenwriters decided to combine those experiences and then make up a story. In another interview, Simon Bufoy clarified, explaining he and his co-writer, William Nicholson, wanted to create a story about someone who was up there and shouldn't have survived, but does, and someone who should survive, but doesn't. So Everest isn't following any one story, but rather it's an amalgamation of the stories. But that doesn't mean the film is rife with inaccuracies. For example, when Beck almost falls off the ladder in the movie, Josh Brolin's version of Beck appears to get upset with the team leader Jason Clark's character, Rob Hall. He grumbles that he didn't pay $65,000 to fall into a crevice. That little detail of pricing is correct. The average cost for an expedition in 1996 was $65,000. With inflation, it'd be about $97,000 in today's dollars. Back in the movie, when they reach Camp 1, everyone is excited and eager. And that is very accurate to how everyone was in real life, too. Everyone's spirits were high. According to Neil Beetleman, 
everyone was filled with anticipation. Sure, there was a lot of climbing ahead, but that's what everyone was there for. How could you not be excited? By the way, Neil Beetleman is played by Tom Goodman Hill in the movie. He was one of the guides for the company Mountain Madness. They're another mountaineering school and guide service, a lot like Adventure Consultants. Except while the Adventure Consultants team was led by Rob Hall, the Mountain Madness team was led by Scott Fisher. Together, Mountain Madness and Adventure Consultants made up two of the three teams on that expedition. So the movie's depiction of more teams is a little bit inaccurate. The other team that actually went was a Taiwanese climbing team, not a team from South Africa like the movie shows. Despite this little inaccuracy, the movie's depiction of going from camp to camp is accurate. Climbing Mount Everest means going to a series of campsites that have been identified. A huge part of this is helping your lungs and body get accustomed to the lack of oxygen, but it's also because, well, you're climbing a huge mountain. As I said before, it's not a race to the top. It's more like a marathon. After Camp 1, the 1996 trekkers headed to, you guessed it, Camp 2. That's going from 19,900 feet or 6,065 meters at Camp 1 to 21,300 feet or 6,492 meters at Camp 2. In the real timeline, this happened on April 19, 1996. In the movie, it's here that Rob Hall and Scott Fisher decide to team up to help each other. There's a lot of people trying to climb, and apparently everyone is trying to ascend the summit on the same day, May 10th. This traffic jam of sorts is true. Between the first ascent to the summit in 1953 until 2011, there's been almost 6,000 people that have ascended Everest. Sadly, as we learned earlier, over 200 of those people have perished in the process. Half of those 6,000 people happened after the events in the film in 1996. While that's been a major increase in traffic on Everest, that's still a small number compared to Earth's population. As you can imagine, it's not like the path to the summit is a major walkway or a walkway at all. And since it's so dangerous, it doesn't take a lot to make an increase in the number of people going at once to be a cause for concern. In 1996, there were two dozen mountaineers who were trying to reach the summit on the same day. To that point in history, the record on a single day was 37 people. That had also happened on May 10th, so the three teams that made up the two dozen people trying to do it decided that May 10th this time would be a good day to do it again. Oh, and as a quick side note, as of this recording, the record for the most people to make it to the peak at once happened in 2012, when 234 people made it to the top of the world on a single day. Wow. Back in the movie, even though it's not really based on a single person's experience, the collective experience of what it must have been like for the 1996 expedition to scale Mount Everest is fairly accurate. In fact, that's exactly what one of the world's leading experts on Mount Everest said. In an interview with Fox News, one of Outside Magazine's contributing editors, Nick Heal, said the events in Everest may not be a documentary, but they're fairly accurate. After Camp 2 comes Camp 3, which the team reached on April 28th. That's going from 21,300 feet or 6,492 meters to 24,500 feet, or 7,467 meters. Then, on May 9th, 1996, the team made it to Camp 4. That's 26,000 feet, or 
7,924 meters. Now, on Mount Everest, anything above 8,000 meters or 26,247 feet is considered the death zone. Of the 286 people who have died trying to scale the summit of Mount Everest, an estimated 150 of those were in the death zone. Sadly, most of those bodies are still up there. They're simply too high to be recovered. The reason is mostly because of what we learned about earlier, lack of oxygen coupled with the difficulty of the climb itself. The last few feet makes what's referred to as the final push as something that's not only extremely difficult to do, but potentially deadly. Since you're only getting the equivalent of one out of every three breaths, that means your body is using up oxygen faster than it can get it back. So simply put, at that height, it's only a matter of time before you die. With the clock ticking, you have to get to the top and back down before your body gives up. In the movie, we see the success of making it to the summit. And this is true. At 2.30 p.m. on May 10th, 1996, the team made it to the South Summit. But as the movie shows next, it's only after this elation of climbing to the tallest point on Earth that devastation occurs. Not only is it true, but it's also common in that more people have perished coming back down from Everest than going up. To my knowledge, there hasn't been any official study on exactly why that is, but if I had to speculate on why that is, I would guess it's because of everything we've talked about so far. You have the lower oxygen levels and the difficulty of climbing the world's tallest mountain, but you also have the final push. I'm sure it's called that for a reason. Imagine you're climbing Mount Everest and you can see the peak. You're almost there. You've almost achieved your dream. The desire to make it just the last few feet has to be overwhelming. That exertion causes your body to use up more oxygen. Remember, your body is using up oxygen faster than it can get it back anyway. That's why a lot of climbers use oxygen tanks. But even with tanks, the clock is still ticking. All you're doing is slowing down that clock, not stopping it. So again, this is my speculation, but I'm guessing the reason why more people die on the way down than the way up is because of that extra exertion to make it to the top. But once you make it to the top, it's only half the trip. You have to make it back down. And you've already added all that extra exertion. Not everybody's body can handle that. For some, the clock simply runs out. According to the movie, though, it wasn't merely the difficulty of the climb that caused the disaster we see. There's a major storm that hits the team. This is true. The turnaround time, or the time at which everyone needed to start the descent, was either 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. Some survivors have said 1 p.m., while others have said 2 p.m. Still, some mountaineers didn't make it to the summit. One of those was John Task, who's played by Tim Dante in the movie. He was a part of the Adventure Consultants team. Around noon, he and two others, Lou Kasichki and Stuart Hutchinson, decided it was getting too close to the turnaround time to be able to make it to the summit and back. So they turned around. When they did, they found Beck Weathers. If you remember in the movie, Josh Brolin's version of Beck Weathers is curled up on the ridge and he waves people off. He's insisting that he's waiting for their team leader, Rob Hall. That happened. Although the movie shows Jake Gyllenhaal's version of Scott Fisher never making it to the summit, according to one of the survivors on Scott's team, Charlotte Fox, Scott made it to the summit around 3 p.m. At that point, the weather was clear. 
but everyone who was going to make it had, and it was time to head back. So the descent began. At such heights, there's always wind and snow, but at some time after 3 p.m. on May 10th, a new storm hit. This was different. One of the members of Scott's Mountain Madness team, Lini Gamelgard, described the new snow as a mixture of popcorn and brown soap, extremely slippery, and it hit out of nowhere. No one expected it. As difficult as it may be to imagine, at one moment you go from achieving what may very well have been your life's goal, a bucket list item, and in the next moment, you can't see the person who was right in front of you. That's not to mention the sheer exhaustion and onset hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen to your tissues. In the movie, Helen Wilton, who's played by Emily Watson, received a radio call back at base camp from Rob. He explains he's stuck at the top of the Hillary step with Doug. This call happened. It was at 4 p.m., and the only difference here was that Rob didn't say that he was with Doug. He just said he was with someone who was in trouble, and Helen assumed it was Doug. Oh, and the Hillary step? That's also real. That's a 39-foot or 12-meter tall sheer rock face that's almost entirely vertical. It was named after Sir Edmund Hillary, who, we learned earlier, was the first to scale the summit. With the clock ticking, things go from bad to worse. The movie is pretty accurate in its depiction of the conditions. While Rob and Doug were stuck at the top of the Hillary step, other mountaineers were having difficulties of their own. Sandy Hill Pittman was one of the ones who nearly didn't make it. Charlotte Fox, who's played by Amy Schindler in the film, happened upon Sandy on her way down. She noticed that Sandy was lying down and wasn't moving. She was in bad shape. So Charlotte pulled out her syringe of dexamethasone and gave a shot to Sandy. As a quick side note here, that's the shot that we see Jake Gyllenhaal's version of Scott Fisher give himself in the tent earlier in the movie. Dexamethasone is a steroid medication that's used to help combat the symptoms of mountain sickness. About five minutes after getting the shot, the medicine did its work and Sandy started to come too. One of the guides for the Mountain Madness team, Neil Beetleman, happened upon the two women at this point and he helped Sandy down from here. Because of the storm, as the sun began to set, the conditions only got worse. In the movie, as Beck Weathers lies motionless waiting for Rob Hall, his vision starts to go. This is also true. According to Beck's own recounting of the event, he didn't know exactly how much time had passed, nor did his eyesight disappear right away. It was a slow transition. As the daylight started to transition into nighttime, he knew things were bad. Someone should have been there to help by now. Where were they? And his eyesight started to go as well. At this point, according to Beck, he started to realize he was getting serious hypothermia. He started to hallucinate, and according to Beck, he never really had a sense of dread. Instead, it was really just apathy. He just didn't feel like doing anything. It could have been so easy just to stay there and never get up. Just before 5 p.m., the three mountaineers who turned back before reaching the summit made it back to Camp 4. That's John Task, Lou Kasichki, and Stuart Hutchinson. Later, John would describe the storm that hit just as they arrived at the camp. He described it as sounding like a dozen express trains bearing down on the camp. It was basically whiteout conditions, being able to only see about 50 feet in front of you, or about 15 meters. Fortunately for John, he was able to get inside a tent 
to get some sense of relief from the wind and snow. For many others, though, they were out in the open. In the movie, Sam Worthington's character, Guy Cotter, is at base camp with Emily Watson's Helen Wilton character, and over the radio, Guy suggests Jason Clark's version of Rob Hall leave John Hawke's version of Doug Hansen behind. This happened at 5.14 p.m., and according to Guy's recollection of the events, they didn't have any idea of what Doug's condition was. At about 5.35 p.m., Rob radioed back to base camp saying they were still in the same place. There was a pause. Then, Guy made the recommendation that Rob try to return on his own. It's not an easy decision to make. You're basically telling a guy to leave another guy behind, leaving him for certain death. What would you do in that situation? Would you leave someone behind for certain death? Or would you stay with them, even if it meant, almost certainly, your own death as well? I can't even imagine what that must have been like. At around 6 p.m., the storm got even worse. In the movie, we see lightning and thunder in the storm, and that's accurate. Charlotte Fox recalled this new rage from nature as being incredible, According to Charlotte, as the movie shows, there was both lightning and what must have been deafening thunder up there over five miles above sea level. At this point, according to Sandy's recollection, visibility went from bad to practically nothing. In a span of just a few seconds, it was almost impossible to see people who were just six feet or 1.8 meters ahead of you. Even if you did make it back to camp, imagine trying to find tents in those conditions. It's next to impossible. You'd have to fall on top of the tents to even know they were there. If things went from bad to worse before, things now were going from worse to whatever is beyond that, unimaginable. Not that they could see the sun anyway, but those are the conditions that they had to survive overnight. They hadn't already, any hope the mountaineers had left started to dwindle with each excruciating second that passed. In the movie, while Rob and Doug are up on the mountain, Rob finally decides to leave Doug and go get help. But a disillusioned Doug decides to get up and start walking. He takes off his clip and simply slips out of sight, falling down the mountain. Unfortunately, we don't know if this is how Doug Hansen passed away. What we do know is that at 4.43 a.m. on May 11th, Rob radioed base camp, and when Guy Cotter asked about Doug, Rob's reply was simply that Doug's not with us anymore. Doug Hansen died sometime on the night of May 10th or the early morning of May 11th. We don't know how he died, but some have hypothesized that he fell near the summit. Back in the movie, tears start to flow when there's a heartbreaking radio call between Rob and his wife, Jan, who's played by Kira Knightley. In the movie, she's pregnant with their child, and the team at base camp manages to patch Rob's radio calls through to Jan on a satellite phone. Although this might seem too made for Hollywood to be true, it is. The real Jan Arnold had successfully scaled the summit of Mount Everest with Rob in 1993, but being seven months pregnant, she couldn't go this time. According to a report from the New York Times, Rob Hall remained in touch with base camp throughout most of the evening, 
Despite their urges to keep him moving, he wouldn't give up on Doug Hansen. After Doug passed away, it was too late for Rob, too. At some time in the evening, just like we see in the movie, Rob and Jan had what would be their final call. It's another unimaginable moment. We don't know if Rob passed away mere moments after saying goodbye to his wife like he did in the movie, but based on what we do know, he didn't seem to think he was going to die. He explained his situation to Jan, telling her he couldn't move because of severe frostbite on his legs. He didn't have a tent to break the wind and cold. He didn't have a sleeping bag. He didn't have oxygen, fluids, or food. But despite all of this, Rob told Jan he was confident once the weather cleared that rescuers would come to his aid. Help never came. At the end of the movie, another unbelievable moment happens when Josh Brolin's version of Beck Weathers seems to come back to life. With sheer determination, he walks into Camp 4. Amazingly, this is true. The real Beck Weathers remembers what it was like to go unconscious. He remembers Yasuko Namba, who's played by Naoko Mori in the film, being next to him. Beck just kept thrashing around pushing at Yasuko to try to generate heat on his own, but also to try to keep her moving as well. Slowly, he thrashed less and less. Despite realizing that he had to be freezing to death, he said he wasn't cold. Then at some point, he lost consciousness. While we'll likely never know the exact reasons, many have speculated that a break in the storm caused Beck's body to thaw just enough to wake him from consciousness. When he awoke, Beck recalled not knowing where he was at first. As the situation slowly started to sink in, he also realized no one was coming to help him. If he wanted to survive, he'd have to do something on his own. With no way to know which way was which, according to Beck, he used the wind to help him find the camp. Even though the storm had died down, there's always wind that high up on Everest. The wind was still blowing hard, and by feeling when it was blowing on his face, Beck could get a sense of direction. He thought he remembered the camp was upwind, so he started walking, one step at a time. In front of him, there was nothing but rocks and white snow. As he continued, the thoughts going through his mind was that it was only a matter of time. He might as well just give up and die right here. Why not? If he didn't die here, he'd just go a few more steps and and die over there. Just as he was about to give up, he saw the tents. Meanwhile, back in the movie, interspersed with Beckweather's amazing walk back to camp, there's a scene where Anatoly Bukreev, who's played by Ingvar Sigurdsson, finds Scott Fisher's body. Anatoly was the mountain madness guide who refused to use oxygen earlier in the movie, He puts his hand under Scott's frozen nose. There's nothing. Sadly, the result is true, but that's not how it happened. In truth, Scott Fisher wasn't alone. With him was a member of the Taiwanese climbing group named Makalu Gao. Both Scott and Makalu had stopped moving during the storm overnight. It wasn't until sometime in the afternoon of May 11th that Sherpas reached the two men. Now, I don't think I've mentioned this, but as a quick side note here, a lot of people incorrectly assume Sherpa is a surname, like a last name. 
The name actually comes from two Tibetan words, Shur, which means east, and Pa, meaning people. So Sherpas are the people from eastern Nepal. As with any local people who grew up living around a tourist destination, many Sherpas have made a living helping the mountain climbing groups who have trekked Everest. So the truth is that it was Sherpas who found Scott and Makalu. Unfortunately, Scott Fisher wasn't breathing when they found him. Makalu was, and the Sherpas managed to get him back down to camp. Makalu would later recall the last he saw of Scott was when one of the Sherpas was giving him CPR. It was an attempt that would prove unsuccessful. One of the final scenes in the movie is when a helicopter tries to make it up to base camp to a badly frostbitten Beck Weathers. The movie makes it seem like getting a helicopter that high is pushing the bounds of where helicopters can go. And that is very true. After Beck Weathers managed to make it back to Camp 4, it wasn't the end of his walk. Fortunately, though, the other mountaineers at the camp were able to warm him up some with multiple sleeping bags and hot bottles of water. Because of the lack of air that high up, a helicopter simply can't go 26,000 feet high to where Camp 4 was located. And remember, base camp is at 17,700 feet. So after all of that, the survivors still had to walk down to base camp before they could be rescued by a helicopter. Makalu Gao recalled that he couldn't walk all of it by himself. He said it was only because of the 10 Sherpas who took turns dragging him that he was able to make it down. One Sherpa would drag him for a couple hundred feet, then another one would drag him for the next couple hundred feet. And they'd cycle this way, so it wasn't one person doing it all. Once they made it to base camp, a helicopter arrived. Probably the most inaccurate part here in the movie is when the pilot of the helicopter said they could only fit one person. According to McCullough's recollection, he remembers joining Beck Weathers in the helicopter. And then from base camp, it was about a one-hour flight, the 100 or so miles to Kathmandu, Nepal. That's about 160 kilometers. As a side note here, if you want to see what this sort of helicopter rescue is like, on January 8, 2017, the Discovery Channel launched a new series called Everest Rescue. And that follows the brave pilots who fly choppers up to rescue people from the Mount Everest base camp. Of course, today they're using a more advanced helicopter, the Airbus H-125, formerly known as the B-3E, and that can fly up to 23,000 feet. To learn more about this type of rescuer, see some of the stunning views and just how dangerous it can be just to rescue people on Mount Everest, be sure to check it out. I'll make sure to add a link to that in the show notes. The final moments in the movie show Rob Hall's frozen body. The text on the screen says that Rob's body is still up on Mount Everest along with those who lost their lives. This is true. There were eight people who died on Mount Everest that day. Andrew Harris and Rob Hall from New Zealand, Doug Hansen and Scott Fisher from the United States, Yasuko Namba from Japan. And while the movie focuses on the expeditions of the South Summit, while all of this was going on, there was another expedition on the North Side, it's referred to as the 1996 Indo-Tibetan Border Police Expedition, and it was record-breaking in its own right as the first Indian ascension of Mount Everest. Sadly, three of the six people in this group perished in the same storm. Si Swang Samanla, Dorji Mornup, and Si Swang Paljor. Today, 
their bodies are entombed on Mount Everest along with hundreds of other adventurers who came to tackle the world's highest point and never left. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Even though the story isn't based on any particular book, I would highly recommend giving both Beck Weathers and John Krakauer's books a read. Beck Weathers' book is called Left for Dead, and John Krakauer's book is called Into Thin Air. I'll make sure to put a link to both of those in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. When you're done ordering your copy of Beck and John's books, why not hop over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show? I would truly appreciate it. Thank you so much in advance. You can find a link to the aforementioned books, all of the other podcast episodes, sign up for the show's newsletter to get some exclusive behind the scenes of the show, and more over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the expeditions in 1996 were the first to successfully scale the summit of Mount Everest. Number two, helicopters are used in rescues on Mount Everest, but they can't fly to the top. Number three, there have been over 200 people who have perished climbing Mount Everest. Do you know which one is a lie? Number two and number three are true. That means number one is the lie. As we learned in the beginning of the episode, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the first to successfully scale the summit of Mount Everest on May 29, 1953. Before we wrap up, I got a great email from Jeff who wanted to offer some insight on the Black Mass episode. He wrote, Hey Dan, I'm really enjoying the podcast. I just finished listening to the Black Mass episode. You are correct in saying that High Lie is popular in Spanish-speaking countries and that criminals were interested in skimming money from its coffers. But there's not as much money flowing through it as a fitness business as there was for its real cash flow generator, gambling. High Lie and horse racing used to be the only sports outside Vegas in the U.S. that involved humans and betting. Even though horse races can be fixed at times, there's quite a bit of oversight and regulation that gets in the way. With high lie, not so much. The players would commit what tennis folks call unforced errors all the time. Additionally, when a team lost a point, that team dropped to the bottom of the list and every other team moved up the list to play the standing team. This made rigging high lie a piece of cake. I know this because my grandmother, God rest her gambling soul, took me to Hartford High Lie on my 12th birthday. She and my grandfather were also the first to take me to a horse track, a dog track, and a racing simulcast on my 18th birthday, so I got to place my own bets. My parents weren't the gamblers that my grandparents were. Besides, they had to work. Perhaps the gene skips a generation. I miss my grandparents a lot. They usually played for just a few dollars, but always had a great time. Jeff. Thanks so much for the additional insight into High Lie and for taking the time to write in, Jeff. I think throughout the entire episode of Black Mass, I mispronounced that as Jai Alai. I really apologize for mispronouncing that in the episode. 
Have you noticed a mispronunciation? As much as I try to get things right, I'll be the first to admit I'm sure I don't get it right all the time. Or maybe you're a mountain climber who has more insight into what it must be like to climb Mount Everest. I would love to hear from you. You can find me in the Facebook group, on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if you want to avoid social media altogether, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Let me know what you think. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.